Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Meg, the host of the channel for today, and we are going to talk to Megan Watterson about her new book, Mary Magdalene Revealed, The First Apostle, Her Feminist Gospel, and the Christianity We Haven't Tried Yet. Meg Watterson, (laughs) welcome to the show. For all of you listening, we had extreme technical (laughs) difficulties, and Megan has been so gracious to join us today through all of of that tumultuousness. (laughs) Anyway... Um, Megan, I would love if you could just introduce your book to the readers. Um, just give us a brief overview before I get in with some deep-hearted questions. It's a book about the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which uh, many Christians uh, haven't necessarily heard of or know know that it necessarily exists. And um, for me, I came across it in seminary. Um, and was blown away by it. I was blown away by one first the fact that it existed. Uh, it's the only gospel written in the name of a woman, and it has a very different, a very different idea of what it means to be human. And it it excited me, and it made me fiercely curious. And so I have spent decades studying both her gospel and Mary Magdalene's legend. And so Mary Magdalene Revealed is a book about those studies and also the personal journey I went on based on what was revealed within Mary's gospel that changed my life. Yes, I I would say just from reading it myself, I just felt like it was such an honest and authentic experiential read, as well as rich in history and like the secrets, the secrets that were hidden to us since the fourth century. And um, I'm just going to go right to it. Um, So one of the things that I found the most interesting is this new take. I don't know if this is new, so tell me if it is new. This new take on the story of Mary, who has been portrayed for years and years as having seven demons cast out of her. There are a lot of things that are said wrong about Mary, but I just love that you um, almost revived this language into a way that we could interpret and apply to our own lives. Um, so, I'm just going to read off the powers. Is that okay for our listeners? Okay. So for those of you who are listening, um, I'm sure if you're choosing the Christian studies channel, you have heard the story of Mary having the demons cast out of her. And um, this new fresh take on the demons is that it's actually not the demons, it's powers of the ego. And, and they are listed as such. First is darkness, then craving, then ignorance, craving for death, enslavement to the physical body, false peace of the flesh, and the compulsion of rage. And um, I'm just going to lead our readers through some of the questions that I had throughout the different powers. And um, I want to start with, um, well, first of all, I just want to say that uh, there was a quote that you had, you had pulled from G.K., someone. And it said that, (laughs) yes. And he said that 
Christianity hasn't failed. It just hasn't been tried yet. And I feel like that is one of the most powerful things I've ever heard. <laughs> Where did you come across that quote? Um, so he's a, a lay theologian. Um, and it, it's a pointing towards the Christ movement, which existed before the fourth century, and which is the tradition that the Gospel of Mary, uh, if, if we're going to set it in a context, it's in this Christ movement that existed before the fourth century. And um, that form of Christianity uh, from a, from a sort of academic, you know, from a, a scholar's perspective, that form of Christianity was really about turning the Roman Empire on its head, so making the first the last and the last first. The, the Roman Empire had a very strict hierarchical understanding of human existence, where Caesar was at the absolute tippy-top, and then women and slaves were at the bottom. And you were your power was ranked according to where you uh, rested on that hierarchical structure. And what first century Christians were practicing was a form of being in the world where that hierarchy had fallen, where the, 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 the top was no longer Caesar, but a divine aspect, a, a God that is directly connected to every one of us from within us, from within the heart. And so it renders us in this incredibly radical way, no matter where we ranked on that hierarchical structure, it renders us fundamentally equal, that there is an aspect within each of us that renders us brothers and sisters, no matter who we are. And that was what those early Christians, that's what's contained in Mary's gospel is that essence of, but what we had to confront and what we needed to be able to face and to name was this realm of the ego, the seven powers of the ego that would keep us from the clarity of that divinity, that direct connection or I like to refer to it as the great big unsayable love, but it's a it's a state of being that we can reach from within us that allows us to remember this ultimate connection between all of us. Yes, I love that. And I got that sense from the very beginning of your book that it almost feels like the gospel of Mary, she wrote this kind of to keep the accountability for all of the rest of the gang. You know, like she had this deep intimacy in her personal human relationship with Christ. And then she was ready to just share it with the rest of the community so that there was this accountability to the deeper truth, not to just the, the surface level teachings, you know, but the, the deepest truth of her closest companion. Right. Exactly. You know? So not just the dogma and the external structures oh, of yes. what it would mean to be spiritual, but the internal work. What do we have to do to become fully human? And that's a statement that's repeated in her gospel. It's in Greek, it's anthropos. To be fully human though, is to be fully human and fully divine, both. It's to merge the, the self with the soul. 
So it's to be able to manage through these seven powers of the ego, not once and then forever. You know, it's not some just miraculous, like shining mountaintop moment. It's, it's perpetual practice. It's daily work of identifying, oh, I'm knee, knee deep right now in rage. Like I am completely enraged. And it's being able to become aware of that, that I am trapped in that power right now and, and be able to practice what the first Christians referred to as the kinetic, kenotic path, which is kenosis is Greek for self-emptying love. So the kenotic path was one where when you would reach that state of awareness of being in this deep, you know, neck deep in, in the power of rage, you, you would identify the self, you know, you'd, you'd identify this egoic state you were in and you would release it, release it with love. And so it was a continual handing over, a giving over of the ego so that we can empty ourselves of that, um, you know, really it's a forgetful state, you know, because we're forgetting the truth of who we are in those, when we're uh, under those powers. And so it releases that and returns us to that state of remembrance, um, which is a state which Christ practice of being in love. Yes. And it's almost like when that is a reality that we practice in our spirituality, that the, the act of salvation is continual and accessible. It's not just this external thing that we have to achieve by an external sacrifice. It's this continual and accessible experience that we continue to do. And so we have, it gives us agency and responsibility. We are responsible to continue to do that work of what it might mean to be Christian, of what it might mean to be fully human, of what it might mean to truly live in relation to that understanding that I am equal to any other human being in existence, that we are radically connected. We cannot be separated. I cannot separate myself from someone else and their suffering and their injustices. So we are, we are literally connected and we are responsible, not just for our own state of being in union with that love, but then practicing that love, putting that love into action. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so good. Okay. Well, a lot of this has um, really, one thing that I loved about each chapter, you brought it back each chapter to your personal experience, whether it was with relationships with other people or your travels and your pilgrimage. But one of the things that kept coming up was this, um, an acceptance of the interaction with the Mm -hmm. body in this experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to jump down to the third power of Mm -hmm. ignorance. And you, um, it it starts, a lot of your powers start with an anecdote or Mm -hmm. a story. And this one starts with the handless maiden story. And when I first read that, I thought it said handmaiden's (laughs) tale. And I was like, oh my gosh, we are going there. Like, what is this legend really about? Anyway, um, 
And it was this beautiful experience. And they talked about the body. And one of the things that you ended that story with, I'm just going to read it here. We often think of the end, the happily ever after, as the external union or outward marriage to be held in love by another is just a start. It's not the end. The culmination is when that trauma or wound has left the body altogether so we no longer mm-hmm. have to. Can you talk a little bit mm. about that? Because I I am all about integrating our knowing with what our body is experiencing because I think we have lost that along mm. the way, especially in Christianity. So in, uh, in the first century, these... These scriptures, along with the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, another scripture called the Acts of Paul and Thecla, they they all were relegated into, um, uh, you know, they were considered heretical it, during the formation of the the canon in the fourth century, and they were ordered to be destroyed. And of course, some. Gratefully, some monks were rebellious and they hid them in urns and they buried them in caves in the desert in Egypt. And so we have these fragments um, and they, a large finding um, in the 1940s was at Nag Hammadi in Egypt. And these were referred to as the Gnostic Gospels, which became very well known because of uh, a scholar, Elaine Pagels. And what's been misunderstood is that then, oh, these Gnostics are somehow separate, different, and a complete, you know, uh, religion of their own. Um, And that's been the, the misunderstanding. In truth, what they are is the representative of a form of Christianity that existed before the fourth century. So, but the aspect of why they're referred to as Gnostic gospel is because that term gnosis in Greek means it's, it's not, it's commonly, you know, described as, Oh, knowing yourself, but that isn't the fullness of it. It's the direct, it's knowledge based on direct experience. So when you say God, it's not something you are, you have learned through words. It's not something someone has taught you. It isn't something that comes through the intellect and the mind. When you say you know God and you're referring to the word gnosis, it's referring to a direct experience. And that's what these scriptures and gospels were so concerned about, that we have a direct experience with that which we would call love. Because that is what transforms us. That is the truest form of power, and it exists within every one of us. And so the reason why they were incendiary and considered heretical is because they, all of them, pointed to the kingdom of God as being within us. And all of them, all of them, had a very different understanding of the body than what later got instituted within Christianity, where the body was sinful, the body was less than, you know, the body was really a scapegoat for so much fear. And these gospels, for example, the gospel of Philip, 
the Gospel of Philip pushes and urges and emphasizes that we are to resurrect in this body, in this life. Nothing. The, Philip says nothing happens outside this body, right? Everything happens within this body. So resurrect in this life. So there was a, a different understanding and relationship to what it is to have a body. A body is the chance for the soul's soul to be here. So it, it isn't a burden and it isn't something we're meant to overcome. And, and that speaks towards that reframing of, you know, without Mary's gospel, we would think the seven demons are, you know, you, you can feel the judgment and the inherent sort of sense of evil, you know, or that there's shame embedded in it then. Whereas when we go back to Mary's gospel, which existed long before the concept of the seven demons, the seven powers are saying, this is what it means to be human. This is a part of our experience. We are meant to feel all of these difficult and hard and horrible things. We are meant to. It's the soul's chance to arrive at that darkness and remember love in the midst of it. Mm. Whoa, mic drop in here. That was so good. I even think the way that these the way that these texts were hidden away or removed, forcibly removed from the story, even though they, in in some regard, were trying to protect or hide away certain parts that they thought were bad about the human experience, they also hid all of the good, all of the good that can be experienced in the body that we want to say is sacred. And now we have have so much baggage with even the good things that our body can do because we have been so afraid and disconnected. Yeah. It's, it's confused oh. our relationship to what it means to be here. And, you know, what, what's so powerful in, in the work that I had to go through personally in, in the course of writing the book and researching for the book was that, you know, I, I came to really understand, as you mentioned with the Handless Maiden, that the the body, rather than being an obstacle, really is the goal. The the point is to be able be able to be here fully in the body, present, without numbing, without trying to, you know, exist elsewhere, which is in, in Aramaic, which is the language scholars believe, or one of the languages that Christ spoke in Aramaic, the word for death simply translates as existing elsewhere. And in, in, for so many of us, especially many of us who have experienced trauma, we, we learn to survive by existing elsewhere. It's, it's, it's a, a form of survival and healing coming back to the body and being in the body allows us to have that direct connection to a source of love that is limitless and that no one can take from us and that we don't have to pay for, that we don't have to ask permission to return to. It is 
um, you know, you can see how how complicated it would be to institutionalize a church if everyone also already knew how to reach church inside themselves, you know? Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) And Uh. I think the ideal is to be able to have both, right? Just as the ideal is to be able to have Christ's teachings and Mary Magdalene's teachings, right? To To have some form of external structure of the church, but also to have a roadmap to reach our own sanctuary, you know, no matter where we are, no matter what circumstances we're in, we we have to always be able to find that space inside of us that looks like what a cathedral does when we're standing within it. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I have so many things to say in response. That was just so beautiful. Um, can I ask in your process of, I mean, you have decades of studying this. You are the Mary Magdalene scholar. And I just loved that in, in this book, it's not just all heady academia. I mean, there is history and so much richness to the intellect. But then you also share sneak peeks of your actual personal process with this. And I, I want to know... Um, for listeners who might have the typical Christian experience and know just a small sliver about Mary, what is the one thing that you would want them to gain? If, Mm -hmm. you know, if the whole thing might be too much for them for now, (laughs) what is that one thing you want them to like hang on to and chew on for a little bit? I think if I had to distill it in one of her most powerful teachings is that there is a conversation, a dialogue, an exchange that happens in her gospel that to me, when I was in seminary, just, uh, it, it riveted me. And it's a dialogue that she has with Christ from within her, from in a vision. And she asks, she asks Christ, how is it that she's able to receive this vision? Like with what, with what? aperture, you know, is it with her soul or with her spirit? Like how is she able to perceive him? And he says that it's neither the soul nor the spirit, but rather the mind, which exists between these two. But in the original Greek, which the scripture is written in, that word mind is a very powerful, phenomenal word that doesn't even exist in English. So I kept it in the Greek. It's new, N-O-U-S, new. And that word means the spiritual eye of the heart. So at at the core of Mary's teaching, she's saying to us that Christ revealed a form of seeing a a form of really being in the world, a, a form of perception that he revealed this to her that she then was meant to reveal to all of us. And that's at the heart of her gospel is teaching us how to be able to perceive what's actually true for us, for each one of us. What, what is it that our own soul is telling us we're here to do? And what, I mean, what could be more powerful than understanding what it is that we uniquely are here to do and being able to have the love and the courage and the wisdom 
to take action on it. Yes. And, uh, and just the confidence to trust that voice, because I want to just go out here and say, we're both women on this podcast at the moment. And, and how much experience we both combined have of being taught not how to trust that. And I want to, I want to just jump into my favorite part of the whole entire book real quick. Um, page one night, no, 185. Okay. So this is a section of Mary's gospel that just, uh, I, I just had my breath taken away. I'm going to read it here. It's Mary 10, three through six. After examining these matters, Peter said, has the savior spoken secretly to a woman and not openly so that we would all hear? Surely he did not want to show that she is more worthy than we are. Then Mary wept and said to Peter, my brother, what are you imagining? Do you think that I have thought up these things by myself in my heart or that I'm telling lies about the savior? Oh my gosh. As soon as I read that, I immediately circled it a hundred times and I wrote next to it. This is such an honest and universal woman experience. This has been our experience. And I even think before the canonization of the Bible, before the books were put together, this has been our experience. And Christ, Christ is a one that came and said, I'm choosing to share these things with Mary, the person who no one is currently listening to and believing, but she is listening to herself and I can cultivate that in her. And I was just blown right. away. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? What well, that I, meant to for me, you there's it? such, first of all, we can all identify, you know, this is, this is, this is yes, speaking uh, towards a first century woman's experience. And yet those exact same dynamics still exist right now in the 21st century, right? Believing women and women believing themselves when they hear the truth, when they know the truth and being able to have, as you said, that confidence, because it comes down to that word worth, which is what Peter questions. He questions her worth. And then that goes back to how ingrained that idea of a hierarchy is that she was somehow less worthy because she was not a man, because she did not have rights, according to the Roman Empire. She, she, was, she was down at the bottom of that idea of what it meant to be human and, and to exist. Her existence was considered less worthy. So how brilliant, like how absolutely magnificent to give her the secret teachings, because it would require Peter to heal his misunderstanding of, it would require him to give up the power that he was, the power and the privilege that he had in order to hear her. In or, He would have to heal. He would have to heal from the, that misunderstanding that she's somehow less worthy than he is in order to be able to listen and take her teaching seriously, which as we know, didn't happen, right? Like what, 
Levi comes to her defense and says, if the Savior considered her worthy, then who are, who are we to disregard her? For he loved her completely and knew for he knew her completely and loved her steadfastly. So Levi comes to her defense, but we know in the trajectory of the history of Christianity, she ultimately was not believed. And she was silenced. And by the sixth century, according to Pope Gregory, she she was made the prostitute, the, the faithful. Exactly. So so it's 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 so phenomenal that her 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 gospel her popularity you know her the curiosity i'm so grateful for the curiosity in her this past uh july her feast day you know she was trending on twitter and you know it's that's it's so exciting though to think that we can we can look back and we can heal these misunderstandings that have caused such uh such suffering for so many of us that it's that's why that's why i love as as you said with um the chesterton quote you know the christianity we haven't tried yet what what some people feel like is like uh, you know this this sense of regret or or anger you know i i wish it i wish it could have been and it's like of course, it still can be. You know, we ju- we just haven't put that level of practice. You know, it, it, we we haven't reached the state where we're allowing love to to include all of us. You know, we're not. We just haven't practiced yet what it would mean to to really understand and know that she was as worthy as Peter as 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 now every single one of us, no matter what our race, culture, sex, gender, sexuality, we all have that innate capacity to hear and experience the spiritual eye of the heart and to know that great, big, unsayable love inside of us. Yes. Oh my goodness. I think um, one of the ways that you're your book is communicating that by just sharing this small story of Mary's gospel, where she is being doubted by a sibling in the faith that is showing us like how a little act of mistrust or doubt can lead to systemic oppression. And what I'm hearing you say now is with the hard work of people showing up for Mary since, you know, generations and now we're finally taking a stand in small ways to, to trust Mary, to trust this story, this gospel. Now we are dismantling the systemic oppression and the erasure. And I think that that is just so true with everything. Like, yes, mistrust can happen, but it doesn't need to end there. If we come back to that trust, if we come back to the, the eye of the heart and listen, then we can be a part of rebuilding the right. good. Yes. Beautiful. Beautifully said. Yes, that is so good. Okay. Um, I did want to ask about, there was one part toward the end of the book that talks about um, anointing the 
being the point where someone truly transforms rather than baptism. And as someone who has identified in the Christian faith and been deconstructing for a while and now working my reconstruction, I'm really curious. Um, this was a new way for me to see the story of Mary anointing Christ's feet. Can you talk just a little bit about that? I know we're getting close to time, but I'd just love to hear it on that well, part. What's significant is that in, in Matthew, of course, Christ says this will be done in memory of her. Um, and the the whole practice of anointing within Catholicism and and really within the history of Christianity it became separated from Mary and it, and she's no longer honored as the anointer um and it's difficult to really understand what that role meant um it was meant to happen. It was intended, right? Which is, is what Christ says, uh, in Matthew where it it wasn't like she just spilled all, all of that expensive oil, you know, it was intended that she do do this. And it was intended that Mary in particular do this. And the, the, the practice of anointing is marking the threshold. It's marking really the egoic death. So it's marking the point at which you are remembering that you are not this ignorance. You are not this darkness. You are not only this, you know, you are not only this anger, you are also a soul. It's marking that moment when you allow the ego to die and you allow the soul to rise. And so it's, it's a very, powerful and beautiful ritual that has unfortunately erased or forgotten that Mary really is is the one who's meant to be uh, honored as as being Christ's anointer. And so some of the other gospels that were also excluded, um, the gospel of Philip, which I mentioned, it speaks about this spiritual dimension of anointing. And so it's like when we lost those gospels and those other early first century uh, Christian scriptures, we, we lost a lot of the internal work and the personal process that we can each go through um, and that we can practice because if we just see it literally and in a linear way that Mary is anointing Christ before the crucifixion, then we, and we don't have these other scriptures that talk about anointing being the threshold of consciousness, you know, so we are entering into um, the realm of love, like we're leaving the ego and we're allowing the soul to rise when we anoint ourselves, then we're missing out on the ways that we can practice this personally, daily, and and we're missing really the feminine aspect of what it is to be Christian. We're still, you know, we might be going to church every Sunday, we might be um, volunteering at a soup kitchen, but how are we dealing with the very real uh, 
uh, traumatic uh, issues in our life and and the 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 different powers, egoic powers that are overcoming us and sometimes derailing us, you know, for days, months, years at a time. How are we dealing with this? And so that erasure of the the internal work, which is more considered the feminine work, right? The contemplative prayer, the internal work, and the feminine aspect of Christianity, the female voice. Um, this is what this is what to me is so critical that we lift up again and we, that we remember collectively. Oh, wow. Oh, Megan. Wow. What an honor to be able just to have this chat with you for a little while. I am so thankful for your time. Um, before we let you go, will you just tell us what you're working on now? Um, if you're doing any retreats or anything that our listeners can sign up for and get involved in. I am doing a, tr- a retreat this summer in August at the Omega Institute in Upper State, New York. And uh, for those still not wanting to travel, I'm doing an online course to coincide with Mary Magdalene's feast day in July that's called What Mary Knew by Heart. And we'll be going through her gospel. It's a course that goes through her gospel as well as the gospel of Philip, which I mentioned. Um, And I'm also working on a new book that is uh, based in the acts of Paul and Thecla, because the character of Thecla (gasps) really needs to be, uh, I I hope to, to make her, uh, incredibly well-known. She, she was, is another early Christian, uh, figure, historical figure, uh, that was erased. And she is the counterpart to, to Paul. She ministered alongside Paul. Yes. So I'm, I'm, Oh, you better believe I'm going to be signing up. I'm pre-ordering right now. I cannot wait. It's called the girl who baptized herself. So, (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh, which for a sneak peek, get Mary Magdalene revealed because that is a section in the book and you will read yes. about her and fall in yes. love. Oh Beckle my goodness. That amazing. I love her. Very oh inspiring. Oh my gosh, I am so excited. Okay, well, these sound like all great projects and we are all going to go sign up right now. I just want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed having you. Thank you so much for the patience you gave through all of our technical <laughs> difficulties. Thank you. All right, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks.